I invite you to take your pew Bible and turn to page 1095. That's the Bible found in front of you in the pew. Page 1095. And we are going to start with Romans 6, 23 and continue on into chapter 7. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then we're skipping down to chapter 7, verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us bow in prayer. O God, our Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. I ask that your spirit illumine our minds, inspire our hearts, and instill in us an attitude of worship and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bruce and Ruth. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to Romans chapters 6 and 7, because we'll be returning to them momentarily. We're still working through our series, as you see there on the front of your bulletin, Persevering by Faith and Hope in Christ Jesus. And more and more, I'm wondering, in fact, I'm realizing that this emphasis isn't only for you, it's primarily perhaps even for me, but hopefully you you too. All All this week long, I've contemplated this rather difficult and what might seem to be a dreary passage of Holy Scripture. 
namely Romans 7 and this sermon from it. There's a lot of sin and law, law and sin and, and here and there and, and death too. I actually found myself at a loss at one point. That is, until I began working on what we might call a working theory. What do you think? Point number one, no one likes to be told what to do. Am I a social scientist or what? I may have to tweak it a bit, I don't know, but it's pretty good, I think. Okay, here's the truly, truly genius corollary. No one likes to be told what not to do. I think I was on a roll. Maybe I'll apply for a PhD in behavioral psychology and ask for advanced placement straight to the dissertation with that one. No one likes to be told what to do. No one likes to be told what not to do. And I'm having a little fun here. Um, But what we just described in simple terms are the positive and negative effects of the law. What to do and what not to do. We heard a little bit of it from Ruth's reading just a few moments ago. But even if, or when really, we know the rightness and the goodness, even the holiness of the law, precisely because the lawgiver is altogether righteous, altogether good, and altogether holy, from worshiping only the Lord our God, to not coveting what belongs to our neighbor and not bearing false witness against him, from honoring our fathers and our mothers, to not stealing, including cheating on our taxes and obeying the governing authorities God has given to maintain order, safety, and justice for the common good of all, we still generally don't like it. And please believe me, I am not preaching at you. It's much more the case that I am confessing my own Tendencies. Tell me I can't do something, and something deep within me stirs, oh, really? Tell me I have to do something. That, that same something deep within me stirs, oh, really? And sad to say, we all will and we all have violated the law, God's law. And the verdict is the same today as it was in the garden. On the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good, uh, of good and evil, you will surely die. In a sense, knowing God's law incurs a responsibility to keep God's law. It also provokes us to break God's law, individual commandment by individual commandment. And so we incur the penalty, the ultimate consequence of sin, which is separation from a holy God and ultimately death. That's the, that's the definition, a simple definition of death. Death is the absence of life. This is why the Apostle Paul, writing autobiographically, says in Romans 7, verse 10, you have it there in your Bibles, the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death to me. This is also the central truth of our message for this morning. And I knew when I put a version of it out there on our sign, this Paul's summary statement of our message for this morning and of this passage, that it would not bring with it or project the characteristic uplift that we usually strive for. But it's the truth, 
And we need to work through it biblically, asking the Holy Spirit to help us. Now, how many of us have heard some variation or version of the following statement? It's a matter of life or death. How many? Anybody? Nobody? Here's another. Little did he know the decisions he was making then would quickly become for him and his family a matter of life or death. Or how about this one? Balancing on the knife's edge of the glacier, she realized that every step she took was a matter of life or death. Here's one that's getting a bit closer to our text for this morning. As they argued the evidence in the jury room, the chairman felt the gravity of the situation, that their decision was for the defendant a matter of life or death. Okay, that's great, but we need to add one more that's, a, that's right on top of the point for this morning. As they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ being read and preached, they realized their response, or lack thereof, would become for them eventually a matter of eternal life or death. This is where Romans 6.23 becomes so important, so pivotal, literally speaking, in that it illuminates this two paths, two ways, two outcomes truth of the biblical, biblical gospel. One leading to death, the other leading to life, indeed abundant and eternal life. Look at it with me there, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages, and these wages are the payment or the compensation or the consequences. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, we might say, and, and rightly so, following Jesus isn't free. It may cost me friends, it may cost me my marriage, it may cost me my job, it may cost me my life. And all of these things are possible, it's true. But the free part here means that you can't earn it. You can't pay for it yourself, even with your own life. It must be given to you, and you must receive it, here's the word, freely. Also, we either receive this gift of God's grace freely by faith and hope in the broken body, shed blood, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or we are left alone, but also with with most of historical humanity, standing on our own merits before the righteous judge to receive the righteous, good, and holy sentence of God's law against all sin, which is, as we've already seen, death. This, in just a few words and even fewer lines, is the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Once again, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But wait, there's more. Last Sunday, we dealt, with, we dealt in some detail with Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. But the one thing, the one truth that I'd like to review before we continue on, on is found in verse 6. Look with, look with me there. But now we are released from the law. Released from the law. Why? It says here, because of the body of Christ. 
Let's just look at it from verse 4. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. So it's not through our body, but it's through the body that he sacrificed on our behalf, provided for us his substitution that we might be released from the law. Or here it says, died through, to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, that is, to him who has been raised from the dead, in, uh, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members by, to bear fruit for death. But now, now, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way, or the new way, of the Spirit, and not any longer is the meaning in the old way of the written code. Understanding and practicing the transcendent truth of this verse, both here in its biblical context and in our individual and congregational Christian practice, requires the presence, the power, and illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. We now live by the Spirit and we walk by the Spirit. This doesn't render the written word, in this case meaning the law or more generally the Old Testament, null and void. No, they, the Old Testament, constitute about two-thirds of God's word written for our good, for our instruction, and even more to the point, to point us to Messiah Jesus. But now that Messiah Jesus has come, and even more to the point, now that the Holy Spirit of Christ Jesus has come and taken up residence in and among God's people, the household of the living God, the church of Jesus Christ, we now follow his personal lead. Finally, we, have, we do have to be careful here, but this means that, hear me out here, hear the whole paragraph or the whole sentence. This means that neither the Old Testament nor even the whole Bible are ultimate. God, the Father, is ultimate. God, the Son, and embodiment of God's true word, Jesus Christ, is ultimate. And God, the Holy Spirit, is ultimate. His word, written, will one day be completely fulfilled. And now that Messiah has come and left his spirit for us, in us and among us, we follow him. That is the spirit because we are ultimately saved and sustained by him. Let's just illustrate what I'm saying before we can move on. Could I have a volunteer? I, 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 haven't, I haven't set this up. Any, anybody, so come see me. A volunteer. No volunteers. Kathy, come on up here. You won't believe it, but like a day and a half ago, Kathy had a knee replacement. And uh, here she comes, almost running up here. Okay, so if, if you would stand right here facing our friends here. Now, here's Kathy. She is a born-again Christian. She is growing in her faith. She is reading and studying and applying God's word in Scripture to her life. And she continues to be that. Now, let's just, I give her a Bible. And she's, she's thrilled with it because she knows it to be God's written word. And she's going to be studying it every day for the rest of her life and do so prayerfully. Now, the, the two things I want to talk about here is the Bible and the spirit that is in her. That has actually brought her into salvation, into saving 
of saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the distinct, unique element of her salvation and relationship with God. Why am I making the point? The point is that she needs the Spirit more than anything else. And so do we as a congregation. So watch this. What happens if, because I'm the head of a totalitarian government, or I'm just uh, some bad guy, I take away Kathy's Bible? <laughs> she, she, would, she didn't want to let it go. <laughs> Neither would I. What, what if I take it away? Is, is she still a child of God? Yes, of course she is. She still has the spirit. And we were talking about this at our men's breakfast uh, on, uh, well, I guess it was yesterday morning. It seems like a long time ago to me. We were talking about this yesterday. Uh, the single distinctive biblical test as to whether we are children of God is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not what we believe, though that's very important. It's not our doctrine, though that's very important. It's not even the Bible, because, and, and that's very important. But it is, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer that determines whether they are children of God or, for example, they're just religious, right? So if, if Kathy has her Bible, that's better. But if she doesn't have her Bible, she's still a child of God. So the ultimate meaning in her life and in our life is that we have both the, the Holy Spirit and the Bible to be interpreted by the Spirit and godly counsel uh, too. But I just want us to understand that if we don't have the Spirit, we, we take the Bible away, she still has the Spirit. We take the, we take the Spirit away, she's still dead in her trespasses and sins. As they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ being read and preached, they realized that their response or lack thereof would become for them eventually a matter of eternal life or eternal death. Thank you, Kathy. Give her a hand. Thank you. For her, her bravery above, above all others in the, in the congregation this morning. And now that Messiah has come and left his spirit for us, in us and among us, we follow him, the spirit, because we are ultimately saved and sustained by him. And the, the holy scriptures have been given to us to give us boundaries, to give us instruction how to live this, this life. But it's no longer by the written code. We just read that, right? It's no lo- but in the new way, by the spirit, with the spirit, in the spirit. Now let's turn to our major text this morning, which I'm going to begin on verse 7, since we finished up at verse 6 last week. The first thing I want us to process here, I I put a lot more scripture uh, up here. So the first thing I want us to think about from this passage, beginning with verse 7, is this, knowing God's law, and when I say knowing God's law, I, I mean whether by our conscience which expresses a kind of knowledge of God's law all to itself. C.S. Lewis did a very good job of talking about this in Mere Christianity. You might want to check his writing out about this idea that he calls natural law, that all of us have within us, it is our conscience, an ability to understand right and wrong, 
or, or it's by learning from God's word written. However we come to it, knowing God's law makes us aware of sin and our own sinfulness. Now, we sometimes call this conviction. Um, and that's, that's a good word for it. But we become aware of our sin and our own sinfulness. And, and by the way, often others as well. Look with, it, with me at verse 7. What then shall we say? So what is he referring to then? Well, he's referring to verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the, the idea here is, well, maybe the answer should be, don't teach people the law so they won't know that, what sin is. Well, he's saying that's not the answer. He's, he's answering that, that rebuttal right up front before it ever comes. Continuing on, I would not have known sin if it weren't for the law, for I would not have known what it is to covet If the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So it's it's exactly what I was talking about. Tell me what to do, and I'll rise up and say, oh, no, you won't. Tell me what not to do. Something within me rises up and says, yes, I will. We've all probably had had those responses uh, and some of us more than others, and I would be in the second uh, camp. Um, but this is totally natural, and according to our fallen um, nature, that we rise up and say, I'll do what you tell me not to do, and I won't do what you tell me to do, not until we change, and that is the way of the Spirit. So knowing God's law, whether by our conscience or by learning from God's word written, it makes us aware of sin and our own sinfulness, but the answer is not dispense with God's law. That's not the answer. And we'll get to the answer in just a bit. The second thing I want us to look at, look at is this. Becoming conscious or aware of God's law effectively makes us aware of or realize our hopeless condition according to God's own standards and character of righteousness, holiness, and goodness. So becoming aware of our hopelessness then opens us up to the, to the solution to where hope comes from. In whom should we hope? In what should we hope? How can we hope as opposed to being hopeless? Well, verse 9 and 10 I think is very helpful. I was once alive apart from the law. And what he means by that, before I, knew the, before I knew the law, I could live any way I wanted. I was free. Remember last week we looked at that passage just, just before it? It says we were free, from, free of righteousness. We were, we were not righteous, but we didn't have any righteous standard. We didn't have any awareness that we ought to be righteous, or there was any such thing as righteousness even. Um, and I was alive in a sense... Apart from the law, in that sense, living without a clue that I was doing the wrong thing. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So I'd like to have a discussion with Paul about this. Does he actually mean that at that moment something in his spirit died, something in his uh, future died, something in his 
uh, eternal destiny died? Or, or is he talking more about, I became aware of my deadness? I think it's probably the latter. I think it's probably he became aware of his deadness because the law showed me myself and I understood that the consequences of sin is death and I understood that I have no hope because I am sinful. I am, by spiritual measures, dead. Again, verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And here's our uh, central truth of the message because it, it, is the, it is the central truth of this passage. This is where he's headed all the way from verse 7. It, it's where he's headed after he, gets, uh, after he gets through 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. The very commandment that promised life became death to me. The promise of God's law is if for the one who keeps it, there is life, right? But what Paul is saying here, and he says in other places as well consistently, we cannot, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from being saved, apart from the righteousness of Christ, fulfill the law. We can't do it. And so it becomes death to us. We, we, we become aware that we are without hope and we need a savior. That's the good news. And this, this law that promised life, if I could keep it, actually turned out to be death to me because it re- revealed to me that I can't keep it. I haven't kept it. I won't keep it apart from the Holy Spirit. The third thing, and this is, this is uh, three of four, so we're getting down to it here. And isn't this true? This is just such a, a helpful revelation of God's word. The deceitfulness of sin and the weakness of our flesh constantly conspire to kill us, resulting in immediate spiritual death, and that is apart from Christ and his sealing Holy Spirit. Okay, So we're not talking about losing our salvation here. We're talking about before Christ and eventual physical death. Verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. So how does this happen? Again, there's something within us. I don't think this is necessarily or only spiritual warfare. I don't think this is a demon uh, deceiving us. He says, sin deceived me. It promises life. It promises pleasure. It promises good things. It promises that I'll get ahead. It promises all the things that perhaps I want in the flesh. But the moment we grasp it, the moment we take hold of it, the moment we bite our teeth into it, the moment we do anything to pursue it, we, we discover it actually leads to death. And so in verse 11, once again, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, that is through the commandment, killed me. It promised me life, and it was lying to me. It promised me pleasure, and it will end, apart from Christ, it will end in eternal damnation. Finally, because the law reflects the character and attributes of the lawgiver, 
See, the law isn't good, righteous, and holy on its own. It is good, right, and holy because the lawgiver is good, righteous, and holy. God's law remains holy, righteous, and good despite its devastating effects on sinful flesh. In other words, don't blame the law or the lawgiver. It only makes us aware of our sinfulness and then opens us up to the possibility that we might be saved. That's the role of the law in the life of an unbeliever. And one of the things that we need to do then, once we become children of God or once we are saved, we need to then begin the process of living according to the Spirit's lead, the Spirit's illumination, the Spirit's um, uh, sharing the, Christ, the life of Christ with us, as opposed to the written code. And sometimes we get confused about that, even whole churches. Verse, look at verse uh, 12. So the law, right, despite its devastating effects, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So this is a passage that I'd rather not have to preach and teach from, simply because it's, it's complicated, it's difficult. It's, uh, you know, the, the sign out there says the, the good, holy, and righteous law leads to death. Um, I didn't expect many visitors this morning coming as a result of the sign this week. And we get regular visitors as a result of the sign because that message isn't the uplifting message that we normally want to project. But it's the truth. And we need to hear it. We need to apply it. We need to be aware of it. And we need to also be very much aware that our loved ones may be in deep danger and we need to do our best to reach to them. Whether it's our family, our friends, our neighbors, that's what the Lord does. He uses us to bring others to him. And that's the role of the Spirit or one of the roles in the Spirit in the life of believers. And I would um, encourage you, encourage us all to be a part of that work. The good, righteous, holy law of God fulfilled by Christ. And that's the answer. I said earlier we have an answer to, to why the law and why the law makes us aware of our sin and death as a consequence because we, we then, knowing it, can be saved and we have one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because he gave himself up living a perfectly sinless life he gave himself up as the perfectly satisfactory substitute for us on the cross. And it's because of that sacrifice that he made and the following resurrection uh, on the third day that he can now bring us fully into relationship with God as we believe in faith. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this, your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you even for these verses that are that are hard, and we, we have we haven't we, we don't have a hallelujah here. We, we get one at the end of the chapter, but we don't have it yet here. And so it's either 
preach one part this Sunday, another part the next Sunday, and, and, then, the, and then eventually we get to the hallelujah, or we preach it all at the same time, and we, we can't do that in one sitting, really. Uh, not faithfully and effectively, uh, anyway. So help us, Lord, to take this somewhat dreary passage about law and sin and death and understand that you provided the antidote for it all in the person, in the sacrifice, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for bringing us to this place for this purpose, both to worship you, the one true and living God, and to exalt Jesus Christ, and to hear your gospel and your word preached and taught, that your spirit might grow us up into the knowledge of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted us to leave this morning hearing the words about the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer and in the life of the church that we read from Galatians chapter 5, which is my second favorite chapter in the Bible. Galatians comes before Ephesians, doesn't it? From verse 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then verse 25 and 26, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Lord, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be um, not only present, but powerful in our lives and in the life of your church. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to grow us up into the knowledge of Christ and that we will always look to him for our hope and place in him our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you'll join us for lunch. We'll see you next time.